Attention, please. The motion picture you are about to see contains certain very stomach-upsetting scenes. The producers feel they have a moral obligation to warn each and every ticket buyer of this fact. Although most people have the ability to cope with the sudden nausea and shock, there are some people who cannot handle it. Test audiences, after watching this motion picture, suggested that a warning of some sort be included before each scene they felt to be upsetting. Therefore, the producers have inserted a special warning buzzer and picture of a patron reacting to the scene. When you see the man turning green and the buzzer sounding, those of you who feel you cannot take it, please do not look at the screen. Here is what to look for. It is your only warning of the scene coming up. Thank you for your cooperation. Welcome, today is October 25th, and thank you for listening to another Film Jive Horror Soundtrack Special. My name is Zach Batanti, and I'm here with Talisman in Hand, conducting another horror film score seance that will surely make you shriek and terror. On this year's episode, I'm once again joined by a fury of cinephilia cultural contributors, some of whom Film Jive listeners have heard in the past, along with many new voices that I'm very excited to introduce. The voices you will hear throughout today's episode occupy varied distinctions in film culture, such as film authors, bloggers, composers, critics, filmmakers, as well as film podcasters and programmers. Like with the first volume, each voice will provide a brief audio introduction to their personal favorite piece of horror film score, followed by the music itself. I'd like to thank each and everyone who contributed a selection this year. Of course, these soundtrack episodes would be absolutely impossible if it were not for their gracious collaboration. A theater warning for the 1974 Canadian horror film Corpse Eaters opened the show, followed by the psych rock track Witch Hunt by Frog, 
from the 1973 zombie biker film Psychomania, also known as The Death Wheelers, directed by Don Sharp. The film's soundtrack was composed by British jazz musician John Cameron, who assembled a rather impressive roster of musicians to collaborate on the film's soundtrack under the moniker Frog, which is actually a fake band name used solely for Psychomania. The film itself defies all presumed conventions of the biker film subgenre, foregoing the smell of burnt rubber and grit and grimy textures in favor of immaculate leather stitchings, plush 70s furniture, and the gothic mist with the secret to mortality lying within the wart-covered belly of a frog. Cameron's score remains an anomaly even today as synthesizers remain absent from the score. Rather, guitars run through various phase units create the distinctly frog-like croaks heard at the piece's beginning. These cries from beyond the grave are quickly joined by a funky progressive rock melody that perfectly inhabits the film's tonal tension between British gentility and satanic exploitation. I'd like to now leave the UK and journey to southern Europe, Italy specifically, and introduce Voci dal Nulla, or Voices from the Void, composed by Fabio Frizzi for Lucio Fulci's 1981 Italian supernatural horror film La Aldila or as it's better known by its English title, The Beyond, also released as Seven Doors of Death. The Beyond is the second film in Fulci's Gates of Hell trilogy, along with City of the Living Dead and The House by the Cemetery, but The Beyond remains my personal Fulci touchstone, as it represents a late-period triumph of Italian Gothic horror. The film's irreverent regard for narrative structure enables its complete descent into successive sensorial nightmare, where the very film stock that photographs dissolving faces and flesh-hungry tarantulas seems to be decomposing before our very eyes. Fridzi's entire score, and specifically Voci dal Nulla, recalls the neverness past burrowed beneath the humid bayou soil, beckoning to reenact sepia-soaked unholy violence in a blazoned color tableau. Fridzi's necro-composition with its melodic and vocal repetition cultivates the impression of a resistance song for the undead, projecting painterly images of zombie hordes and the curtains of Fulci's theater of cruelty slowly parting as the reflection of decayed human flesh and smoldering fires penetrate our retinas, which Fulci will undoubtedly violate with his camera obscura bearing a devilish grin. Happy Halloween, and whatever you do, don't open the eyebon.
Hey, this is Alison Lang. Uh, I'm a writer and editor based in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Uh, I edit a magazine called Broken Pencil, which is about zine culture. You can find that at brokenpencil.com. I'm also a regular contributor to Rue Morgue magazine, which you can find at rue-morgue.com. And I also recently uh, contributed a chapter to a book titled a Satanic Panic Pop Culture Paranoia in the 1980s, which you can buy from Fab Press, which is fabpress.com. Uh, and I really appreciate being invited to talk about my favorite horror track that I think about a lot around Halloween. Uh, and for me, I know people are going to choose a lot of instrumental tracks, a lot of Goblin, a lot of Fabio Fritzi, a lot of uh, more orchestral stuff, John Carpenter and whatever. For me, uh, my ultimate terrifying Halloween track is Give It Up by Evelyn Champagne King. Evelyn Champagne King was a prominent kind of disco slash R&B artist who uh, made sort of the transition to like synthier stuff, synthier pop music, I guess, in the 80s. Uh, and her song, Give It Up, is used um, to particularly excellent effect, I feel, in the movie Fright Night. Uh, now, I'm not going to tell you guys what Fright Night's about. You've all probably seen it millions of times. I know I certainly have. I really like the use of this song in what I feel is one of the iconic scenes in the film, which is where the vampire, Jerry Dandridge, is chasing uh, his hapless next-door neighbor, Charlie Brewster, who is so cool, Brewster, and his girlfriend, Amy, into, like, this nightclub, which is, like, the ultimate 80s nightclub, by the way. The lighting is perfect. Uh, it's perfectly sleazy. Everyone's dancing in that awkward way. Uh, everyone's clothes are ridiculous, but also great. And anyway, they're, they're trying to get away from him. <laughs> um, and basically, Jerry has realized that uh, Amy really strongly resembles um, his old love, you know, from centuries ago. So he uh, locks eyes with Amy in the club, and Amy kind of falls under his spell. And I mean, how could you not fall under Jerry Dandridge's spell? I'm sorry, Chris Sarandon is, you know, he's smoking. This is a, a, a wonderful role to, you know, show off his many physical attributes and his magnetism as an actor. Anyway, so he, <laughs> little side, side note there. But yeah, so he, they lock eyes, and I just find this song is used to really prominent effect. Um, primarily, sort of the descending uh, piano, like the electric key keyboard line at the beginning. Uh, it perfectly conveys to me a sense of um, sort of sexual menace. Uh, and every time I hear it, I can't help but think about this scene in the film. Um, and it's just really well paced. I think the actors do a really good job of sort of conveying, you know, sort of animal magnetism. It's kind of sexy, and it's also cheesy in the, that wonderful 80s way. But it really uh, propels things in the film forward, and I think it's a really excellent example of um, a pop song that's used to sort of menacing effect in a horror film. And we will, you know, you see ex other examples of this too. Uh, like Dwight Twiley and stuff in You're Next. Anyway, I'm reaching the end of my time here, so thanks a lot, and uh, check the song out! Honey, you
I'm Patrick Rapole, host of Tracks of the Damned, a horror film commentary track podcast. And unless you're driving, I want you to close your eyes. It's 1999, and you're in a multiplex about to see a horror film. You don't know much about it. You haven't really seen ads for it anywhere. But at this point in the 90s, you know exactly what to expect from a scary movie. What you'll see is a bunch of beautiful, TV-ready teen heartthrobs getting into high-speed chases with a knife-wielding maniac in a mask. And what you'll hear is something like... Or... Scream was a massive success that influenced every aspect of Hollywood horror, and his music was no exception. Afterwards, Marco Beltrami became the go-to producer for Dimension Films horror flicks, and the whole new wave of slashers that followed sounded just like him. Hard percussions, blasting horn sections, frenzied strings, all less interested in melodies or leitmotifs than bludgeoning you with whatever's happening on screen at any moment. It got so popular that even if you were a composer that tried to color outside the lines, like John Ottman's decidedly magical Danny Elfman-inspired score for Halloween H2O, the studio heads would yank out your score and replace them with Beltrami cuts from Scream 2 and Mimic. And remember, you're in a theater in 1999, so the lights fade down, the screen fades up, and instead of hearing timpanis, brass, and string sections, you're hearing banjos, flutes, and is that a goddamn accordion? Turns out you just sat down for one of the most original and strange horror films of the 90s. You sat down for Ravenous. Between the Civil War-era frontier setting, the black humor, the biting commentary on America's westward expansion, and the gruesome cannibal gore, there's a lot about Ravenous that sets it apart from the pack. There had never been another film like it, and considering it was a box office bomb, maybe it's not surprising there hasn't been one since. But it's always the music of Ravenous I return to. Ravenous has two composers who, rather than collaborate, each did about half the music in the film. One was seminal minimalist composer Michael Neiman, and the other was Damon Albarn, lead vocalist for Blur. It's David Albarn's work I'd like to talk about. 
Alburn composed the score for Ravenous right after creating virtual band The Gorillas, and in a lot of ways it captures the same tension between the real and synthetic. The track Boyd's Journey is a great example of this and operates as the film's main theme. The sampled banjo plucks build a creaky dread and menace, as if John Carpenter had to perform the music of Assault on Precinct 13 with an American Roots band. But then the rest of the band comes in slow and sad, trying to cover up the danger with a funeral dirge. It's creepy and it's sad, and its elegiac melancholy works as a perfect counterpoint to the heart of violence that lives in the American dream. All while that sampled banjo taps at the back of your brain like a hunger that will never go away. If Fabio Frizi and John Philip Sousa had a baby, it'd be the score to Ravenous. Hello there, I am Michael McKenzie. And I'm Lee Howard. And we are the Movie Matters Podcast. So we were asked by Zach from Film Jive to come up with a horror movie score that we're particularly fond of. And we have chosen the track Ave Satani from the 1976 uh, film The Omen. Yeah, by Jerry Goldsmith, because I'm sure he's probably a composer that might feature a lot on the show that Zach's putting together. But, um, you know, you can never have too much Goldsmith, let's be honest. He's the grandfather of film music. Absolutely. I'll, I'll kind of do a brief rundown of my history with this. I came across The Omen when I was maybe kind of nine or ten years old. It was probably the first proper horror movie that I saw and as such it made an instant impression on me and then kind of coming back to it at a sort of at a later age what really struck me about it immediately was how much of a role the score played in you know the impression that it left on me they do say that um film is 50% visuals and 50% sound and I think um, with The Omen that you really do feel that 50% it transforms the film into something very very special. Yep completely agree I mean I didn't see it till much later in life actually but I'd always kind of heard um, 
snippets of the score and it's something that kind of like built up a reputation of expectation of what the omen might actually deliver for me you know when i finally got around to seeing it so yeah what one of the things that i really appreciate about the track that we're going to listen to is how it kind of builds very slowly at the start and of course immediately you get that that kind of um sort of chanting which again always gives it a real kind of sense of I don't know, a legitimate, moody, scary film, and it builds, and it's almost like hypnotically repeat, repetitive as it kind of progressively builds loud, larger and louder throughout the track. Yeah, there's this very kind of deceptively simplistic piano uh, piece that keeps kind of repeating underneath it, and it, as you say, Lee, it is just this kind of, you have this sense of things starting small and then building to this kind of sort of cataclysmic climax, much like the you know, the whole setup of the film itself, if you like. Because you start with the birth of a child and then, you know, when you get to the end of the trilogy, it's kind of basically, you're, you know, you're, you're verging on the destruction of the world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's just one of those pieces of music that feels like it's got real heft and, and kind of strength and potency. And that is because of the kind of range, I guess, the fact that you've got like these really low drum notes, but also, you know, like you were saying about the piano piece, but also sort of high flutes. It's it's a it is the composition overall, the kind of mixture, and uh, you know, of course, the music marrying so perfectly with that chanting. It's a, certainly a classic of its type in the genre. So our selection then is Avi Satani from The Omen, um, an excellent track for an excellent film. And if you want to hear more of us talking about films and film music and uh, everything else film related, then you can find us at Movie Matters Podcast. .com I give to you, Satan. 
Now, the shocking truth about witchcraft, as it exists in our cities and suburbs, is exposed in Witchcraft 70. Hidden cameras probe today's unspeakable cults to document the rites and the rituals when and where they happened. Witchcraft 70. Now see actual human sacrifice on the altar of Bael. Witness the weird rites of the cult of Kali. See the sensual ecstasies of the hippie families. Watch as the Church of Satan celebrates its infamous Black Mass. Witchcraft 70. You will see macabre orgies of a secret sect of evil and hear the erotic prayers of our so-called civilized world and much, much more in explicit color and detail. See Witchcraft 70. It is rated X. Hi, this is Bill Ackerman, host of the Supporting Characters podcast. I'm here to introduce Tama DiMarco, a piece of music sometimes misattributed to the band Goblin, but actually from Elibra, a group formed by drummer Walter Martino, who played in an early lineup of Goblin prior to their famous soundtrack work for Dario Argento and George Romero. This music comes from Mario Bava's 1977 film Shock, which I first saw on VHS under the misleading title Beyond the Door 2. Uh, regardless of what you call it, it's probably the film of Bava's I return to the most. Uh, Bava directed a number of classics that overshadow it, and I wouldn't argue that it's necessarily a better film than Black Sunday, Black Sabbath, Blood and Black Lace, or Lisa and the Devil. It's the story of a woman who moves with her young son and new husband into the house where her previous husband died. Uh, the woman had just been released from a mental institution, and the fact that her husband's vengeful ghost possesses their son and compels him to do creepy and perverted things begins to put her on edge. Shock was the last feature film from Mario Bava as director and serves as kind of a torch-passing effort. Uh, it bears the strong influence of Mario Bava's son, Lamberto Bava, an assistant to his father on this film, as well as the co-writer of the script. The film is a kind of energetic mix of the sort of post-repulsion thriller of a woman losing her mind, like Let's Scare Jessica to Death or Images, uh, blended with the type of evil, possessed kid movies that uh, The Exorcist and The Omen helped trigger an abundance of. The casting of actress Daria Nicolodi in the lead and the use of a goblin-like soundtrack make the influence of Dario Argento's Deep Red apparent as well. Uh, I'm up two minds when it comes to progressive rock being used as score music in European horror films. I tend to like it for aesthetic reasons, but I also feel like, as with the post-sync dialogue, it has a uh, kind of distancing effect that makes the films less scary. E. Libra's score for shock allows for all sorts of things, from dissonant avant-garde compositions, gentle acoustic guitar detours, moody piano pieces, and buoyantly silly noodling. But the track Tama de Marca really interests me. It opens with a melody that sounds like a somewhat grating children's toy, uh, sing-songy, but uh, like abrasively so. It's clearly going for the lullaby feel of a theme from Deep Red, but it also points towards the colder, minimalist melodies of John Carpenter and the many slasher movie scores that would imitate him. And then around a minute and ten seconds in, it becomes a full band performance, working up a melancholy theme heard earlier in the film, initially as a piano piece, uh, here it's given an almost triumphant treatment. For reasons I've never quite figured out, that melody triggers a very specific emotional reaction in me of some troubling childhood feeling, even in this very bombastic prog rock arrangement. It's a completely personal response, uh, very hard to elaborate on without derailing your podcast. Tema DeMarco plays at the end of the film, over the end credits, which is a very uncharacteristic place for the directorial career of Mario Bava to conclude. But as a piece of music that marries elements that are both tacking over the top with something kind of sad and eerie, it effectively sums up shock.
Hi, this is Regina Berry, aka Tesseract, of Consistent Panda Bear Shape. Pretty much every horror film entails ordinary folk being hunted by something evil. Sometimes the evil wins because the character is too slow or injured or runs upstairs instead of out the front door. But sometimes evil wins because it worms its way under the skin of the well-intentioned. Bodies get infected with an alien parasite or succumb to an ancient curse. But then, there are the movies where evil wins by looking benign or even appealing to its victims. Evil hiding underneath an attractive surface is the backbone of Karen Kusama's 2009 horror comedy Jennifer's Body. The mayhem starts when the titular Jennifer, a sexually liberated high school student, tries to become a groupie for Low Shoulder, an unexceptional rock band visiting her podunk hometown. Instead of getting to bang the lead singer, Jennifer gets sacrificed to Satan in exchange for the band's wealth and fame. Low Shoulder's song, Through the Trees, turns into an overnight success, the venue they play mysteriously burns to the ground, and Jennifer turns into a succubus. The main story is driven by teenagers trying to sate their hormones and unholy hunger for human flesh, but in the background is a traumatized community idolizing the same guys who were ultimately responsible not only for causing the tragic fire, but for unleashing a murderous demon on their town. Is it the influence of Lucifer, or the cultural imperative to assign something cool and meaningful to handsome young musicians? Watching the film, I judged the townsfolk for making low shoulder their heroes, but when I woke up the next day, through the trees was stuck in my head. And the day after that, too. And then, in a week or two, I caught myself humming it, and for a split second, I wasn't disgusted by the mediocrity of Through the Trees. I was okay with the soft rock drivel. Jennifer's body is just a film. It can't give you the experience of resurrecting as a demon or having your guts literally ripped out by the hottest girl in your class. But it can give you a little taste of being helpless to malicious intentions. And it does so through a very effective earworm. And... Like any formerly innocent character who finds themselves enthralled to a devilish antagonist, I have no choice, my friends, but to inflict the same terror on you.
used to talk about the places we would go when we were all and all that we were gonna find. And I remember watching our seeds grow and how you cried when you saw the first leaf show. The love was born from your eyes. So can you see? Branches hanging over me. Can you see the love you left inside of me and my face? Can you see through the trees? This is Philip Rubaker, co-host of the podcast In the Queue, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. I chose to talk about the main theme for Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. It should be noted that this is not the famous shower scene music. It is what we hear during the opening credits, and man, does it ever set the tone for the whole film. Bernard Herrmann is the composer who worked with Hitchcock on seven films. Together, they were a match made in heaven. A good opening horror theme will set the stage for what terrors await, and this piece of music does just that. The strings are so aggressive and relentless. The cellists are not so much playing their instruments as they are abusing them. I can't even imagine what the sheet music looks like for this. The music moves so fast you can get swept up in it, and it becomes extremely pleasurable to listen to, despite also being so disturbing. The violence of the music mirrors the violence of the film. If you took the bow out of the hands of the musicians and replaced it with a knife, they would become murderers. For a horror film where the weapon of choice is a butcher knife, it's fitting that the music reflects a kind of stabbing motion. Overall, it's a timeless piece of music, and that's why it's my pick for this year's horror playlist.
I am Tenebris Kate, co-hostess of the Bad Books for Bad People podcast and writer on all subjects, lurid, weird, and fantastique. For this year's Film Jive Horror Music Mixtape, I have selected The Lions and the Cucumber from Jess Franco's amazing soundtrack to the film Vampiros Lesbos. Now, Franco is known for having a lot of jazz influence, especially in his early films from the late 60s and early 70s, but there is some amazing psychedelic stuff that's going on in Vampiros Lesbos. This was composed by Manfred Hubler, Siegfried Schwab, and Jess Franco, who is actually credited under a pseudonym, uh, David Kuhn. What's interesting about this soundtrack is that in much the way the film itself inverts a lot of the tropes of typical vampire cinema, instead of bats, you have seagulls, and instead of nighttime misty moors, you have these beautiful Turkish seascapes, and instead of women in nightgowns, you have women in uh, big sunglasses and bikinis. Um, these same ideas of inversion kind of carry through to the soundtrack where you might expect to hear pipe organs or something very ominous. Instead, you have this incredibly groovy 60s swingin' soundtrack. So let's take a moment and enjoy this retro, vintage, psychedelic, trippy insanity together. Happy Halloween!
What happens to Nancy and Sheila in the mansion of the doomed is so horrifying, we can't even hint at it on this radio station. Mansion of the doomed is so shocking, it will never appear on television. Some films you see, some you feel. You'll feel Mansion of the Doomed. You'll never forget Mansion of the Doomed. Hello, Film Jive listeners. My name is Patrick Walsh, and I am the host of Scream Queens, the podcast where horror gets bent. And that's Queens spelled with a Z at the end. You know, like Liza. Because I'm gay. Now, what does his being gay have to do with anything? Well, I'll tell you. On my podcast, twice a month, I take a look at the wild and wonderful world of horror, but as seen through these very gay little eyes. So, your favorite films I might see differently than you. And you might see them differently after you listen to me. And also, my being gay absolutely influences the music choice that I've made for this show. The song that I have chosen is from the soundtrack of the movie Troll from 1986, directed by John Carl Bolcher. And it is Cantos Profane. Sure, Troll may not be the scariest of movies. It may not be the most well-put-together film either. But what it does have in abundance is a sense of fun and a wonderful sense of camp. And the song itself that I've chosen, this is the song that the trolls sing. And it embraces everything I love about Halloween. In that there is a beauty to it as well as an ugliness. There is danger lurking under its playful surface. The choral vocals embrace both the sacred and the profane, the sublime sounds of a boy soprano, echoing my Catholic school upbringing, contrasted with the guttural grunting and groaning of the trolls themselves. And come on, I can't help myself, I'm gay! I'm a sucker for a full-blown musical number. A full-blown musical number in a horror movie? Sign me up. So sit back, relax, grab yourself a rat burger, and pour yourself a delicious cool glass of Herber Herberway, Herber 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 Herberway, and enjoy Cantos Profane, composed by Richard Band from the movie Troll. Thank you. 
I'm CJ Lines. I write for a variety of websites. I've written a couple of books, and you can find out more at cjlines.com. And I'm here to tell you about The Curse of Shanananananana. Odds are, if you're a horror fan in the late 90s or early 2000s, you'll know what that noise was. And maybe you even felt a little quickening of the pulse. A rumbling in the bowels, maybe. Something stick in the mind forever. And Kayako's death rattle from the original Grudge film is pretty tough to shake. Along with Ring, it was one of the most influential and terrifying Japanese horror films of the decade, responsible for a whole generation being a little wary of anyone with long black hair worn over their faces. Both of those films led to a string of sequels, spin-offs, rip-offs, and remakes, and this year saw the release of The Illogical Extreme, Sadako vs. Kayako, a fiendishly enjoyable crossover movie where the franchises collide and the two ghosts have a fight. Co-written by original grudge creator Takashi Shimizu, it's a real trip and a big crowd-pleaser. A lot of it's played for laughs, but it also shows a knowledge and a love of Japan's urban legends. And you know, it's still pretty creepy too. When you see Sadako's giant hands reaching out for you, or hear that noise, or see Kaiko's clicky, undead limbs. But don't worry if you get too scared, because the whole thing wraps up with a perky theme song called No Noyari Shanananana by Sakima 2. I chose this song for the podcast because I just fell in love with it straight away. It was a throwback to that time in the 80s where almost every horror film would end with a wildly inappropriate metal song. And Psychima 2 are themselves a real deal 80s metal band. They formed in 1982 and have been huge in Japan ever since, rocking out in Kiss style makeup, racking up a string of albums with great names like Frightful Restaurant and Devil Bless You, as well as doing soundtracks and even their own anime series. This song is bouncy as hell, super catchy, and honestly, if you're not singing along by the final chorus, you're already dead. Although, as you'll see if you watch the music video, even Sadako and Kayako grew from beyond the grave to this. Crank it. Oh, my God, I see that 
切金が大切彼女大切絆大切夢が大切愛が大切心大切わわすつらく出会い巡り合い一期一会でも永遠に続くと信じててもきっとある時大きな力で惨めに汚されることもあるOnce again, to、uh, Film Jive's Horror Film Music Spectacular. For this year, I, I, I really thought about what I wanted to、uh, speak about. And、um, after thinking long and hard about it, I finally decided to、uh, spotlight the Del Ayres Joyride from Del Tinney's 1964 beach party horror film, The Horror Party Beach. The film is probably most famous as an experiment on、uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. It was on in season 8, I believe. Probably the most famous song from the movie is Zombie Stomp, but I prefer Joyride. Horror Party Beach is a regional horror film made in upstate New York, and the Del Ayres were a New Jersey based surf rock band. The film combines a few of my loves,、uh, one of which are regional horror films, and the other is surf rock from areas other than California. For instance,、uh, Minnesota was a hotbed for surf rock in the 60s, as strange as that might be. This has real. Regional flair of upstate New York, kind of,、um, kind of almost like、uh, Connecticut's feeling.、Um, there is kind of like a, a, a waspy、uh, feeling of the main characters. And、uh, Deltini's Horror Party Beach was、uh, marketed as the first horror monster musical. It was released in June 1964, and、uh, we know that it wasn't really the first. Monster musical because、uh, Ray Dennis Steckler's The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed Up Zombies was released in March of 64, so that predates it. And it also was、uh, cre- credited on the film posters as the first monster musical. Horror Party Beach, like I said, is most famous as an、uh, episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000, but prior to that, it was probably most famous for,、uh, for having a、uh, comic book. It was a、uh, fumetti, like,、uh, like in Italy, where they would have stills from the movie. And then they would have,、uh, like, dialogue balloons above them.、Uh, Warren released two of those around that、uh, roughly the same time period. One was for the Horror Party Beach, and the other one was a kind of like a quasi double feature, if you will, of Horror of Dracula and Curse of Frankenstein. It's kind of funny that there were、uh, 
the two that Warren released was kind of this uh, regional horror film and two of the defining horror films of the era. Um, I happen to own the the Horror of Dracula Curse of Frankenstein uh, comic. I do not have Horror Party Beach. I'd love to own it, though. Speaking of the music again, uh, on the on the episode of Mystery Science, they made a, a lot of fun of the Del Airs in the music, but I think it's quite good. It's a fun surf, quasi-surf music, I suppose. I mean, are they as good as, say, like, Jan and Dean? No, they're definitely not the Beach Boys. Or the Trashmen. Um, but, there's, but they're good. I mean, I understand it's part of the show to kind of make fun of everything. But here's an instance where I don't think it really deserved to be made fun of. The music's quite good. I don't know. I liked it. Um, like I said, Joyride is what I'm picking. Um, Zombie Stomp would have been more horry. Uh, but uh, I like Joy- Joyride better. So, enjoy. Turn on the ignition For this expedition Fly me baby Oh my, oh why I should Hey, that reminds me, did I bring my hot dog buns? Gonna get some willy how it feels to fly on the road Gonna get some willy how it feels to fly on the road Make a left, make a right, not a cock and fly on the road Let's fly! This is Rooney Elmi, the founding editor of the new movie magazine, Sillywood, a seasonal publication geared toward curating a new cinephilia. We're about to release our very first issue called The Feminine Mystique Redux, which we hope will help to revive an outdated film scholarship for the 21st century feminist horror film buff. That being said, let's get into the film I chose for today, which is David Robert Mitchell's 2015 indie hit, It Follows. At the time of the release of It Follows, 
I was failing a math class at university and thought, hey, what better way to skip a test than go see a horror film in the middle of spring? <laughs> As a result, I failed, but was left with a truly invigorating movie-going experience. It Follows isn't explicitly terrifying by any stretch of the imagination, but it is riddled with palpable tension, which is all in part to the unbelievable soundtrack. I still consider it the greatest OST since Drive. And I actually have the CD and I play it in my car whenever I feel the need to wake up. It's almost like a personal audible espresso shot. It Follows is about a teenage girl, Jay, who's being terrorized by a malicious curse passed down to her via intercourse. The it in It Follows can be seen as a metaphor for sexually transmitted diseases, but narrative allegories aside, the score mastered by Staten Island native Richard Verlin, also known as Disastrophes, sincerely elevates the feeling of emerging teen sexuality and imminent danger. Think the French electronic music duo Justice and Italian rock band Goblin, which famously scored Dario Argento's The Siberia. I think we're living in a bit of an 80s synth revival thanks to the Netflix hit Stranger Things, but It Follows can really be seen as the start of this vintage throwback for millennial audiences, which I really don't see stopping at anytime soon. So with that being said, I'm gonna log off, but can't wait to hear what other choices are. Women. 
together they will trap you in a world of horror. But if you live through it, <laughs> you will never forget. The Brainiac and the Curse of the Crying Women. Hello, this is Jasper Lee, and I compose music for films. I've done scores for several horror films, including Your Next, directed by Adam Wingard. For this year's horror mixtape, I want to talk about the music from a 1968 film called Spirits of the Dead. Now, this film is based on the stories of Edgar Allan Poe and is divided into three segments, each by a different director. I'll be talking about the first segment called Metzengerstein. The music that stands out the most to me is in the opening credits, and it's by a composer named Jean Prodromides. The mood that this music sets is incredibly mysterious. I can't even tell what instruments are in there. It sounds like a broken hurdy-gurdy, and then you have this zither part that is playing all these notes that just sound wrong, but so entrancing at the same time. And in the background, you have the sound of some kind of wind. The music in this film has not been remastered, and I hope it never is, because it has this scratchy quality from, you know, the master tapes that probably were stored in a dungeon somewhere. It literally sounds haunted. Just listen. And it sounds like there's other things going on in the very distant background, maybe across a valley or on the other side of a mountain range. There's supernatural things going on out there and this wind is blowing towards you it's just eroding time breaking down the laws of nature some of the weirdest music i've ever heard and i hope you'll listen to it this halloween at the stroke of midnight I'm Michelle Clifford, and I've written about Times Square in general, and Grindhouse films in particular. I'm co-author of the book Sleazoid Express, the Grindhouse Bible of Times Square and its theaters. You can get that book through Simon & Schuster. My Halloween song offering comes direct from the deuce and is sealed with a kiss. The theme song to 1973's Love Me Dudley. The music is by Phil Moody. The vocals are Kit Fuller. The film Love Me Deadly stars TV's Lau Wagner in all of his super 70s square-jawed glory. Love Me Deadly is a barbiturate and liquor-soaked ode to death, daddy fetish, the notion of forever, the romance of denial, and the practice of necrophilia. 
I originally saw Love Me Deadly on 42nd Street in a suffocating grindhouse on a raining summer Sunday afternoon. The grizzled, drug-casualty-filled Times Square audience sat through it with their teeth chattering, clutching their crack pipes hard for security, their Bic lighters shooting into the air while they watched this debauched fuckery unfold before their eyes. Love Me Deadly had a soundtrack, but sadly, for vinyl soundtrack collectors, it was never released. Love Me Deadly is the perfect, fucked-up, grindhouse Halloween movie with a velour theme song to boot. Check it out, because sometimes it's on YouTube for a hot, quick minute, and then it's ripped down. Love Me Deadly is a dark film full of secrets, if you're into that kind of thing. Happy Halloween. Kiss me deadly This very special love can never be Touch me deadly Hold me deadly Look in my eyes and tell me Never see me. 
this secret love I have is mine alone. Darling, go now. For I know now that if you stay to love me, I'll love you My name is Veronica Fitzpatrick. I write about art and culture, and I teach English and film studies at the University of Pittsburgh. For this week's episode, I wanted to highlight a movie that's as erotic as it is horrifying, because that's where my investment in genre tends to reside, in the outlier or the hybrid, the moment that compels even as it repulses. Park Chan-wook's 2013 film Stoker follows a teenage girl named India in the aftermath of her beloved father's accidental death. His funeral is crashed by her charismatic and unreasonably handsome Uncle Charlie, whom she's never met, and with whom she experiences an immediate, if initially reluctant, affinity. Stoker plays like a mashup of Hitchcock's 1943 film noir Shadow of a Doubt and a kind of 60s-inflected glass menagerie, thanks to Nicole Kidman's pretty underrated turn as India's beautiful, useless mother and top competition for Uncle Charlie's affections. Though Clint Mansell replaced Philip Glass as the film's score composer, two of Glass's original compositions for piano remain in the film, and the duet you're about to hear is one of them. In Stoker, this is a fully diegetic set piece. The story pauses and we get a kind of musical number. In this scene, India practices piano, playing the first notes of a melody we've already heard. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, Uncle Charlie joins her. We cut from close-ups of hands brushing together to India's characteristically sullen expression to overheads of the keys to a voyeuristic long shot of Charlie bending over the bench. Nearly a minute in, he scoots in beside her. Earlier, India's mother gives Charlie a crude piano lesson under the impression, which he supplies, that he doesn't know how to play. But as Charlie curls behind India on the bench and her breathing intensifies, two things become clear. Charlie knows precisely what he's doing, and India is as much an instrument, subject to technical fluency, as are the keys under their fingers. For several minutes, before the film's moral framework surrounding murder and incest reasserts itself, India and Uncle Charlie's duet invites us not only to consider, but to get swept up by the magnetic attraction between members of a family briefly linked by their very brokenness. Insofar as it builds and expresses the tension that's implicit throughout the film, it's tempting to read the performance of music here as a surrogate for sex. But given India's aversion to being touched, and the film's overall willingness to be explicit elsewhere, there's no reason why we shouldn't read this as intentional, and frankly, literal. The duet in Stoker is sex, a spiraling toward release that we hear rather than strictly see.
My name is Curtis Hare, and I'm the executive director of the Nightlight Cinema in Akron, Ohio. The piece I'm about to introduce to you is from a film that sits on the periphery of horror. It's more properly horrifying than it is horror-filled. That film is called Trouble Every Day by French filmmaker Claire Denis, and it was released in 2002. Denis' work is all bound up with ruminations on madness, desire, and power. And in the case of Trouble Every Day, we're talking about images of eroticized cannibalism and postcoital carnage that burrow their way inside of you. Like the theme's sadistic and intimate lyrics go, I get on the inside of you, you can blow it all away. One of filmmaker Claire Denis' hallmarks is her consistent collaboration with the English band Tindersticks, whose music is fanatically gloomy. From the deep, foreboding timbre of Stuart A. Staples' voice to the minor key monotony that still manages to swell into painfully emotional heights, listening to the Tindersticks music is always a great way to make a bad day worse, when that's the only thing that will make you feel better. From start to finish, Trouble Every Day's soundtrack revolves around a singular musical theme that reaches its most dynamic and disturbing in the film's closing credits. So here it is, the closing theme from Trouble Every Day.
The desecration of human mammals less than 300 years ago. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that you've been guilty of witchcraft. Tortures pitting human appendages against the strength of cold, brutal steel. The rack, the claw, the tongs. Devices that made death a welcomed pleasure. Every torture device authentic, actually used at one time. Mark of the Devil, positively the most horrifying film ever made, guaranteed to upset your stomach. This city is now being flooded with stomach distress bags. No one will be allowed in the theater auditorium without these free bags, also available at the theater box office. Mark of the Devil, all ages admitted, parental guidance suggested. and Film Jive listeners. This is Jim Laskowski with the uh, Directors Club podcast, as well as the uh, mind behind the Now Playing Network. So I'm very excited once again to be a part of this incredible, spooktacular of sounds and soundtracks and scores um, hosted by one brilliant Zach who, you know, was brave enough to put this all together. Um, So I'm excited to hear everybody's contributions and uh, I'm always excited to be a part of uh, a very very good podcast so I was toying with a number of um, scores and compositions I wanted to highlight a little bit of a curveball <laughs> a soundtrack that uh, still haunts me to this day an image that still haunts me to today to this day and maybe if I just say these two words you'll know where I'm going and those two words would be, Jesus wept. Yes, um, you know, I, I started out very young watching movies I shouldn't have watched. And one of those, um, you know, when you add to the list of like things like Nightmare on Elm Street, Exorcist, and Henry, was a movie by Clive Barker called Hellraiser. And seeing that in an impressionable age really stuck with me, and I absolutely love most of Clive's work. But uh, some of his films haven't always been successful. But Hellraiser is an example of one that is very successful. And it has a soundtrack by a band named Coil. And it's very kind of like avant-garde, industrial sounding. I mean, kind of the stuff that Nin would later employ for his work. But, I don't know, the band, you know, finished 
their contributions and, you know, pulled out because this, the movie studio decided that Coyle's work was not commercial enough. But Coyle really created these very layered, tense soundscapes, and it's actually very, very perfect for the worlds of Clive Barker and particularly Hellraiser. It's very, very, very hard to find... I use the word very a lot. It's very hard to find copies of this uh, version of the soundtrack. But honestly, I, I envision myself someday trying to figure out how to take out the score that's already in Hellraiser and um, putting Coil's contributions into place. Now, maybe it's not officially a release that was out there and that you can easily find, but I think it's worth highlighting simply because it's Coil and it's so damn good and so damn interesting, and I hope Zach will let it on this episode. So, once again, here is Coil's contributions uh, and their score to... Um, my favorite Clive Barker film to this date still, and that would be Hellraiser. Have a great show. Happy Halloween to everybody. My name is Fanta and I'm a freelance film critic based in Paris. The music I chose for my segment is from the soundtrack of the TV adaptation of Stephen King's It. The film is relevant for two reasons. One is that the book is being readapted for the cinema 
And secondly, we are hearing a lot about creepy clowns lately who might have been inspired by the film. It is the story of a group of friends, the Losers Club, who we follow from their twinhood to their adulthood as they are facing a malevolent spirit in their hometown of Derry. This malevolent spirit takes many forms, but its main manifestation is that of a clown. The TV film is memorable because of Tim Curry's performance as Pennywise, and I think he's the one who turned this film into a classic, despite it just being a TV film and having many flaws. Uh, so the music I've chosen is Pennywise theme, something that on first hearing, uh, without seeing the film, seems very childish and candid and fun. It's a very like circus, festive music. Uh, it becomes very creepy and scary in relation uh, to this character who kills children. I watched the film for the first time when I was really young. Uh, one evening I didn't want to go to sleep. I faked hunger and went to the living room with my parents and the film was on. So I didn't watch the entire thing, but the few minutes I have seen were enough to traumatize me. I think I watched until Georgie's death and then tried to go back to sleep. Of course, I couldn't. So it affected me a lot. Um, I didn't walk near gutters for a long time because of that specific scene. It's one, one of my favorite films and this character is iconic. I can't believe I'm going to say this after the sweaty, long nights I was spent because of him, but yeah, long live Pennywise. Hi, I'm Dr. Russ Hunter, Senior Lecturer in Film and Television at Northumbria University here in the UK. The piece of music that I want to talk about today is Profondo Rosso, the, the title track from the film Profondo Rosso or Deep Red, uh, 1975 Giallo by, by Dario Argento. Sometimes with pieces of music and soundtracks, the story of the, the soundtrack is more interesting than, than the music that, that comes out of it or the soundtrack itself. Sometimes we hit pay dirt and you get an interesting story and a, and a significant and important piece of music. And that's definitely the, the case here, I think, with this. The story goes that originally uh, Argento had asked a jazz musician and composer called Giorgio Gaslini to, to do the music for the film, which he did. But Argento wasn't happy with the, the final product. And Gaslini, who was touring at the time, didn't have time to, to change the, the soundtrack to come back and do it again. So Argento asked 
a prog rock group called Goblin, who were then a kind of unknown Rome-based group, but who later became really intimately associated with Argento's work and Italian, I guess, horror soundtracks much more generally. This upsets Gaslini, of course. It made newspaper headlines, the, the argument, I guess, between him and Gaslini uh, in, in Italy. Uh, nonetheless, the final soundtrack is kind of a mix, I guess, between Gaslini's work and, and Goblin's, but it's really mainly mainly Goblin's soundtrack, even though Gaslini was credited in, on the original release of the film with, with having written the music. Goblin are an interesting band because they were a prog rock band and they really bring that to, to the piece of music that you're, you're about to listen to and indeed to the, to the soundtrack for this film and, and later to, to soundtracks like Suspiria, for example. As a prog rock group, the, the, they bring to this, I guess, is, is, a, is a weird combination of prog rock and then mixing that with a kind of horror sound and a horror aesthetic so that we get this really weird kind of prog rock gothic quality to the, the music. Certainly they're influenced, and if you listen by people like Mike Oldfield, for example, if you listen to the, to the music that's about to follow. But they later, I would argue, influenced other people, particularly people like John Carpenter on the soundtrack to things like Halloween, because there's a strangely kind of insistent uh, electronic quality to the music that you hear, uh, you're about to hear, that I think is really interesting. But they, they also mix this sort of, I suppose, electronic quality with much more traditional instruments particularly things like organs that you're going to hear in this soundtrack. And about 50 seconds in, there's a, an organ that comes in that immediately gives the, the soundtrack a, a different edge to it, the, the mixture between kind of the modern sounds and that old sound, or a sound we associate at least with kind of, kind of the past, comes in. Um, for me, actually, the, the, the organ sound that you hear in this makes me think of, of much earlier films, much more earlier kind of gothic films, films from the 50s, from, from even the 30s, and even before that. And even if those films didn't necessarily have the same kind of soundtrack you're going to hear here, that organ quality, at least, you kind of feel that they had that, that sort of gothic quality that the organ brings to things. The final 30 seconds of this for me are probably the, the, the creepiest of the whole thing because it's just an organ playing by by itself, the final 30 seconds of the, the track you're about to hear. Uh, and that for me is, is creepier really than anything. And particularly because if you watch the, the film and you watch the music in context, the titles finish with this music playing and we get this this, this um, organ soundtrack and then immediately we get an introduction to the, the central character Marcus Daly who's a jazz musician and he's playing with his jazz band and that's really the first thing we see in the film and there's a real contrast between what the music suggests is going to happen and how we're introduced to the character of Marcus Daly and his life and his world and the music before seems to suggest that's all about to change.
Hi, I'm Simone Bajros. I've worked in various television and film productions and have recently begun directing audiobooks. I'm a co-host here at Film Jive and I'm concluding this Halloween's horror movie soundtrack playlist with Michael Levy's soundtrack for Under the Skin. I'm glad there are those for whom Under the Skin is a horror film. I had enjoyed it as a science fiction work and in that paradigm, it becomes an exploration of what it means to be human with the protagonist being a non-human consciousness that's provided for in science through aliens or android presence, it allows us to look at gender roles. As the protagonist becomes a woman, men are more open to approaching or engaging in a woman that they don't know, making them vulnerable to her feeding upon them. However, if we look at it as a horror film, it can be compared to um, the monster story in which the protagonist becomes a monster. And in that regard, it's, it's very much like The Bride of Frankenstein in which the monster does not have a lot of interaction with human society and human um, relationships. And that becomes the very thing that he wants or that he craves when our protagonist and under the skin begins to crave that interpersonal human interaction, becomes curious about it, that is when and she actually becomes vulnerable to the violence of our society. Michael Levy's handling of the score with horror elements beautifully highlights that understanding and that interpretation of the film. All of the music that Michael Levy composed and recorded for the film epitomizes dissonance and atonal music to create an exciting discomfort for the film. Her score is the auditory embodiment of the isolation, disorientation, and violence expressed in the mood and tone of the visuals. She does this by using the violent sounds of instrumentation that screech and scratch and buzz and hum by layering in thick reverberating thumps and indiscernible audio. My ears strain, breaths, silence, and hairs and skin on the back of my neck and arm rise at attention. Her music becomes a sensorial cacophony, an actual experience on into itself that puts me in a state of alert, hyper-consciousness, fear. Without moments of melody, the only catharsis she offers is silence. In the track Drift, You'll hear the epitome of all of these elements and all of these qualities that she creates for the film, Under the Skin.